Welcome to the Battle for the Republic. It is the night of Monday, December 30th, 2019, and uh, a lot of good headlines in the news today. Uh, by way of Zero Hedge, we see that uh, Joe Biden uh, was called out for touching children at a, well, ironically, uh, he ended up having a rally on Sunday in a middle school gymnasium. And uh, so he was called out by individuals who attended that rally. We also end up having uh, an article that I am going to get into written by Jonathan Turley, who is a constitutional law uh, lawyer and professor at uh, George Mason University or George Washington uh, University. And uh Jonathan Turley was, you know, basically ground in the dirt by his supposed liberal allies and friends and have basically, you know, called him out for having an opinion that is not their own. And so that's a it's a very interesting article. And look at what he has gone through. We also end up seeing. Uh, again, on Zero Hedge, dark web dealers spread fentanyl across America. Now, I was talking to some people uh, over the past couple of days uh, about how I see a lot of that is just China getting back at the United States for and really the West for the opium uh, wars, which ended up basically plaguing China, where we had forced uh, China not we, really the British forced China to continue to buy opium and force them, really their people, uh, to continue to purchase opium, which wasn't really good for the country. And the Chinese government knew it, but they were just unable to control the East India Company, which was a British corporation that, that trafficked in the Golden Triangle. Um, we also end up having the shooting that happened yesterday afternoon and the appropriate quote from the Texas pastor, thank God for good guys with guns, which is what saved his congregation and, uh, ended up having a, a mass shooting at a Texas church and white settlement and the gunman got what was coming to him very quickly by a, a, prof, a professional who actually trains in firearm safety. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the only thing that will counteract a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. And truthfully, again, at the, at the end of the day, let's be honest, gun control should be making sure that the second round hits where the first round went. That's, that's all gun control should really refer to, the ability to control the accuracy of one shot as opposed to controlling a citizenry's right to own and bear arms. But that's not, again, what the liberals would like to have anyone realize or believe. And so let's just hop into this. You know, I, I do find it hilarious uh, that people are calling Joe Biden out for touching 
children in weird ways on video. I mean, it's it's out there, Creepy Uncle Joe. You can see lots of videos on it. I'm getting the nod off by my wife, who I don't know if she wants me to continue on this topic or not, but it's one of those things where, truthfully, at the end of the day, it's Democrats, it's Republicans, they're, they're all into awful things, and, and we're not going to get into that on this episode. But what we are going to get into is this Jonathan Turley article uh, by way of Zero Hedge. Jonathan Turley, the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not testify for Republicans, because truthfully, this is what we're we're going to see. We're going to see that facts don't really matter. Uh, what matters is the political narrative and the left's ability to control it. And it's it's interesting because my wife and I just this night we wrapped up the Netflix series The Confession Killer, um, and that is a documentary, kind of not really a docudrama, but a, a documentary about Henry Lee Lucas, who was America's most prolific serial killer based upon his confessions, and that DNA results as well as other things seem to strongly suggest based upon his later admission that he was a liar. This is one of those things like, do you trust the liar when he admitted to killing people or do you trust the liar after he admits being a liar and that he lied about killing people? It's, it's one of those things where once that comes out, how do you know where it, where it lies? Um, really, where does it lay? And so, but what we do see is we see a mechanism towards the end of that series where the authorities with the media, Channel 8, in, in, in this specific situation, the authorities go to the media and they don't like the fact that the district attorney in Waco thinks that the Texas Rangers have, have been contributing to a bunch of closed, cold cases by having a man admit to things that he hadn't done and that they most likely knew that he hadn't done. Now, the interesting part of all of this is, is that, well, the person heading the Texas Rangers, according to this, seemed to have gotten very mad about it, and therefore he starts a investigation into the district attorney almost immediately after the gentleman convenes a grand jury to find out about three murders that Henry Lee Lucas has already had confessed to. So instead of just accepting his confession, they convene a grand jury, they bring all this information up front, and the head of the Texas Rangers doesn't like it, or that's the one who they settle on as being the person who instigates this stuff against the district attorney. And basically, he meets with Channel 8. He feeds them what will later become seven to eight segments that Channel 8 does. Uh, I think it's uh, Phil Duncan, one of the, the newscasters. Uh, they didn't camp out on that part of it. Uh, but Duncan ends up later being sued uh, by 
the by the district attorney for for libel and the district attorney wins 58 million which is one of the largest lawsuits for libel uh ever won got him in the Guinness Book of World Records and but you know 58 million dollars it's it's just money the man's marriage is destroyed his kids lives are never the same he loses his political career he was one of the youngest district attorneys to be uh, ever elected at, I believe, the age of 32. Um, and so his political life is ruined because he decided that he was actually going to ask questions and convene a grand jury. And so the head of the Texas Rangers gets uh, Duncan to do several series of stories. And those stories are later played the the actual media tapes are played for the grand jury which leads to an indictment of the district attorney on using his office for corruption well i'll be damned if that just doesn't dovetail into exactly what we're seeing in regard to trump and the democrats and even nancy pelosi refers to it um as a special type of smear campaign I think she refers to it as the the wrap-up smear. I'm looking that up, uh, but I believe that's what uh, what she actually called it. Yeah, the wrap-up smear. Um, and so, let's see. This is I always think it's funny whenever you get to uh, you you do a search. And because you're searching and let's see, it takes you to Snopes, which is just a liberal propaganda arm. Uh, so claim in a C-SPAN video, U.S. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi revealed the Democrats use a political smear tactic she called the wrap-up smear. Rating, miscaptioned. Uh... Do you rely on Snopes reporting, become a member today? Hell no, I don't rely on this garbage uh, because it actually, you know, suggests that it's it's not correct. But, I mean, that's exactly what she calls it. She says you make a statement, you wait for the news to cover it, the news covers it, and then that's what you what you do. It says um, unreliable sources claim Pelosi admitted on video that Democrats use such a tactic, but in reality, she ascribed it to Republicans. No, she actually says, we call it the wrap-up smear. You demonize, and then you, we call it the wrap-up smear. Well, normally, whenever you refer to we, we is not they. They is them over there. We is you and I. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those, well, is it true or is it not? But anyway, uh, and, and that's what we see here. We see the wrap-up smear uh, in this, the confession killer. We see it all throughout the Trump impeachment. Uh, we see it also really kind of to a certain extent in what Jonathan Turley is about to, to talk about what he's just gone through. And, and at the end of the day, it is a tactic that's used to discredit an opponent. And 
we saw it with the Steele dossier. Basically, Steele got unverified, quote unquote, raw intelligence. Basically, it's a load of bullshit. And then he goes out to journalists and he peddles it to, you know, naive, uh, really agents of influence is what they'd be called when it was foreign governments. And, and since most of the information came from the Russians, it would be true. The Russians like to refer to them as useful idiots, which, I mean, that's not really that far when you think of today's media. But anyway, whenever it comes down to it, these useful idiots go and they, they, they are the mouthpieces like Duncan was for the confession killer uh, video, uh, like he was for the, the head of the Texas Rangers. And so it's very interesting to see how all of this plays out. But here from Jonathan Turley, the, the, the title of the article again is Jonathan Turley, the 11th commandment, thou shalt not testify for Republicans, which again is very similar to what, to what that district attorney did was that he just wanted to make sure that the information, if he was about to convict somebody on a murder charge in Texas, which is a death penalty state, that he actually, the guy wasn't just lying for publicity. And so because he didn't just roundly believe what the authorities were saying, well, then he became labeled as anti-police, anti-law and order, and therefore they were able to smear him as being corrupt, even though he was acquitted by a jury of his peers. Uh, but his reputation was forever ruined, and that's the thing that 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 a lot of people don't really think about whenever it comes to this. So here we go, Jonathan Turley. American journalist H.L. Minken once observed, say what you will about the Ten Commandments, you must always come back to the pleasant fact that there are only ten of them. Despite an unending respect for Minken, this is an occasion in which I found him mistaken. After I violated the 11th commandment, thou shalt not testify for Republicans. Worse yet, I'm a recidivist offender. In that, after testifying as a constitutional expert in both the Clinton and Trump impeachment hearings, like all mortal sins, the violation of the 11th commandment comes not just eternal, but immediate damnation. What is most striking about this commandment is that it does not matter if your testimony is made in good faith. For example, under the ninth commandment, you are only guilty if you give false evidence against your neighbor. Under the eleventh commandment, it does not matter if your testimony is true or false. A law-fearing academic must not give any testimony for Republicans. In my recent testimony before the House Judiciary Committee regarding President Trump's impeachment, I opposed the position of my fellow witnesses that the definition of actual crimes is immaterial to their use as the basis for impeachment. And I specifically opposed impeachment articles based on bribery, extortion, campaign finance violations, or obstruction of justice. The committee ultimately rejected those articles and adopted the only two articles I felt could be legitimately advanced, abuse of power, obstruction of Congress. Chairman Gerald Nadler even ended the hearing by quoting my position on abuse of power. Our only disagreement was that I opposed impeachment on this record as incomplete and insufficient for submission to the Senate. None of that matters. 
under the 11th commandment, however, it is the act of testifying for Republicans that is a sin against the legal academy. Indeed, what followed was a series of false stories attacking not my testimony, but me personally. The falsity of these stories is a warning to any academic who considers straying from the democratic path. The first article was totally flipped his testimony from the Clinton impeachment. One of the most bizarre false stories was that I testified differently on my views of impeachment during the Clinton and Trump impeachments. Given the 21-year gap, it might not be strange for views to change. However, my views in the two cases were the same. In both hearings, I said president could be impeached for non-criminal conduct, including abuse of public office. Yet stories on CNN and other outlets objected that, in the Clinton case, I warned Congress, if you decide that certain acts do not rise to impeachable offenses, you will expand the space for executive conduct. However, this was portrayed as a flip-flop, since I was arguing against impeachment in the Trump hearings on this record. It does not matter that you that the Judiciary Committee did precisely what I suggested in dropping the four criminal theories for the articles or going forward with the same two I said would be legitimate. I was not arguing against impeachment on the two articles adopted, only that a completed record was absent. More importantly, the statement in the Clinton case referred to perjury. Democrats argued back then that a president could commit perjury on some subjects such as sexual relations and not face impeachment. <clears throat> they argued that an impeachment crime must be tied to the office, not to personal interests. This was ridiculous and would allow a president to kill a lover but not face impeachment. Indeed, the Democratic position would allow a presidential Harvey Weinstein to abuse countless interns and then presume them to lie to an independent counsel. Another one of the most vile false stories can be traced to a tweet sent out by a University of Baltimore law professor asking, Does anybody else remember Jonathan Turley appearing on MSNBC to explain that Sonia Sotomayor didn't have the intellect to serve on the Supreme Court? I certainly didn't remember that because I never said anything like that. No matter, soon from MSNBC to liberal websites, the story was all the rage, with titles such as Jonathan Turley thought Sonia Sotomayor wasn't smart enough to be on the Supreme Court. When the judge, when then Judge Sotomayor was nominated, I was asked as a legal commentator to review her opinions and give my view of what that body of work suggested about her potential in the Supreme Court. The issue at the time was whether President Obama was appointing an intellectual counterweight to conservative Justice Antonin Scalia. I noted that her opinions were narrow and offered few insights into her potential as an intellectual force on the court. My comments were directed to her opinions, not her intellect, and I was not alone in this conclusion. Adam Liptak in the New York Times noted that her opinions were narrow and revealed no larger version, seldom appeal to history, and consistently avoid quotable language. In the interview cited by the Baltimore professor, I gave my view of 30 of Sotomayor's opinions, which did not contain anything particularly deep or profound in judging her possible impact on the court. However, I immediately stated that this is not unique and that other justices have had similarly short, unremarkable appellate opinions yet proved to be profound on the Supreme Court. 
I expressly compared Sotomayor to Justice John Paul Stevens, whom I have long praised. I also said that Sotomayor could prove to be a truly great justice, but that her opinions did not offer any glimpse into how she might emerge in such a role. So he continues to go on to defend himself. And he surmises this um, at the end by noting that none of that matters, however, because hearsay demands condemnation whether or not it is based in reality. After all, this is all meant to get people not to seriously consider the flaws in the impeachment, including the proposed articles that ultimately were dropped. So for any academic tempted to testify Republicans in an impeachment proceeding, I can only caution that Romans 12.19 may say that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but judgment will be more immediate for anyone who strays from the chosen profession, professorial path. And so... <clears throat> It's one of these things that when it comes down to it, this is one of the strengths of the Democratic Party is, is that they all rally around even the most flawed opinions or positions, mainly because they whip everyone into agreement. And so whenever you do see um, individuals break ranks, it ends up being one of the more astonishing paths uh, for someone to take. But what we do see is that it does end up happening. Just as we recently ended up seeing uh, this, the impeachment backfire and force uh, a New Jersey Democratic Congressman, Jeff Van Drew, to switch over and become a Republican, mainly because he did not agree with being whipped into supporting the impeachment. And, and this is one of the things, when you go back to what Pelosi said at the beginning of the impeachment proceedings, uh, or really even before uh, there was a formal impeachment inquiry, was that it needed to be bipartisan. And, and if we've seen anything, the only thing that has been really bipartisan has been the resistance to impeachment. All of that said, what what we recognize is that this is all a political play, and, and it's important that I kind of get into this now, because... As I have considered it over the weekend, what the Democrats are doing right now is a good offense. And what I mean by that is the best defense is a good offense. The Democrats are very concerned with all of the investigations that are going on, most of them out of the public spotlight, but a couple of them being in the public spotlight, especially the, the Durham, the Durham probe. Um, this is one of the more shocking, uh, and concerning, uh, parts that we are seeing. We end up having individuals such as Admiral, uh, former NSA director, Michael Rogers cooperating with Durham, um, we end up having focus being shifted to John Brennan. Well, this was the, the natural tendency where this investigation w was going. And all of it was, was very apparent early on in the early stages of the administration.
And so it's very similar to the confession killer in that when the district attorney convened the grand jury to start investigating the the murders and to see if Henry Lee Lucas had participated, had been a, an active participant in these murders. Well, that was the exact same time that the Texas Rangers decided to start investigating the district attorney. And the reason why is because they didn't like him disturbing the ox cart. And that's exactly what we have going on right now. We end up having a lot of operatives. You know, it's been it's been referred to as the deep state. We can go back to to what Edward Bernays referred to as the invisible government who actually rule part of the nation by by changing opinions and Bernays ended up even talking about how whenever it comes to to TV and media and TV wasn't as big during his time as the movies were but in our time it's the movie is and it's the 24/7 news cycle and so we combine that with Pelosi's wrap-up smear, and we can start to see why the Democrats have been pushing impeachment from day one was because they want to make it illegitimate, any type of charges that will come against them. That's exactly what we saw in regard to the investigations of, of Biden. You know, the fact that Biden was running for president whenever Trump was talking about, actually he hadn't formally announced of being a, a candidate yet um, whenever they really started the investigation into what was happening in the Ukraine. But the fact that, that Biden is running for president as uh, this question about a, a quid pro quo being offered up for investigating Biden uh, for military uh, arms and equipment. Um is the reason why it is even more important that the impeachment starts to, to whip up into a frenzy because not only do we have Biden's son, but we also have Pelosi's son working for energy, an energy company, uh, an oil and gas company in Ukraine. We also end up having, uh, again, several articles from Zero Hedge about George Soros in Ukraine. Um, and all of this ends up coming to me as I sit here and talk about it. So let me just go to Zero Hedge and find that most recent article. About George Soros and... Uh, basically hacked emails so here well that actually goes back to this goes all the way back to 2015 so even before the election hacked emails exposed george soros's ukraine Puppet master. Just days after George Soros warned that World War III was imminent unless Washington backed down to China on IMF currency basket inclusion, the hacker collective Cyber Barracut uh, has exposed the billionaire as a real puppet master behind the scenes in the Ukraine. And uh, this is actually the same group that exposed 
this most recent. Uh, the hacking group uh, Cyber Burkut claims it has uh, penetrated Ukraine's presidential and administration website and obtained correspondence between Soros and Ukraine's president Petro Poroshenko. It has subsequently posted all the intercepted PDFs online at the following location. <clears throat> and let's see. So that's back in 2015. But I mean, then again, we we know that whenever it comes to Soros and him working very hard in order to push uh, his his different foundations that look like they are, let's see, for freedom. And then as you kind of get into them, you, you just realize how much BS that is. Um, and and really, George Soros is a man of a not so checkered past. Uh, it's it's kind of um, well known his sixty minutes interview that where he sits there and, and talks about. It. And this is the other thing that you have to be careful with whenever it comes to George Soros. Any critique of George Soros because he has comes from Jewish heritage. But as far as I'm aware, he's an, a non-practicing Jew. He would just be uh, Jewish through through birth um, because he actually betrayed a lot of Jews uh, whenever he was growing up as he robbed them before they were put into Nazi death camps, which that's all by his own admission. And so but if you bring that up, you're being anti-Semitic towards George Soros, though his actions are the more anti-Semitic. Um, really testimony uh, and testament to, to really kind of who he is. So it's one of those interesting things that, you know, you, you critique uh, an anti-Semite and if he was Jewish, then you're called anti-Semitic. Uh, it's still don't quite fully understand the, oh, here we go. Okay, before the uh, podcast uh, set up so rudely interrupted me, I was uh, laying the beating down of George Soros. So I was talking about how the irony of, of being labeled anti-Semitic whenever you actually point out someone who screws over the Jews, who just happens to be Jewish, it's, it's one of those things that the, the liberal mind must really have leaps in logic in order to maintain that. But maintain it it does and so it's it's just something to be well aware of that George Soros his actions as a young man as an old man are anti-semitic and just by talking about his actions does not make you anti-semitic for criticizing him because he's Jewish or of Jewish heritage even though you know, when's the last time he's gone to the synagogue? So here, uh, by way of Zero Hedge, An American Oligarch's Dirty Tale of Corruption by William Ingdahl via LewRockwell.com. Rarely does the world get a true look inside the corrupt world of Western oligarchs and the brazen manipulation they use to enhance their fortunes at the expense of the public good. The following comes from correspondence of the Hungarian-born billionaire, now naturalized American speculator, George Soros. The hacker group, Cyber Barracoot, 
has published online letters allegedly written by Soros that reveal him not only as puppet master of the U.S.-backed Ukraine regime. They also reveal his machinations with the U.S. government and the officials of the European Union in a scheme where, if he succeeds, he can win billions in the plunder of Ukraine assets. All, of course, would be at the expense of Ukrainian citizens and EU taxpayers. What the three hacked documents reveal is a degree of behind-the-scenes manipulation of the most minute details of the Kiev regime by the New York billionaire. In the longest memo dated March 15, 2015, and marked confidential, Soros outlines a detailed map of actions for the Ukraine regime, titled A Short and Medium-Term Comprehensive Strategy for the New Ukraine. The memo from Soros calls for steps to restore the fighting capacity of Ukraine without violating the Minsk Agreement. To do the restoring, Soros blithely notes that General Wesley Clark, Polish General Zak, and a few specialists under the auspices of the Atlantic Council, emphasis added, will advise President Poroshenko how to restore the fighting capacity of Ukraine without violating the Minsk Agreement. Soros also calls for supplying lethal arms to Ukraine and secretly training Ukrainian army personnel in Romania to avoid direct NATO presence in Ukraine. The Atlantic Council is a leading Washington pro-NATO think tank. Notably, Wesley Clark is also a business associate of Soros in BNK Petroleum, which does business in Poland. Clark some might recall, was the mentally unstable NATO general in charge of the 1999 bombing of Serbia who ordered NATO soldiers to fire on Russian soldiers guarding the Pristina International Airport. The Russians were there as part of an agreed joint NATO-Russia peacekeeping operation supposed to police Kosovo. The British commander, General Mike Jackson, refused Clark, retorting, I'm not going to start the Third World War for you. Now Clark apparently decided to come out of retirement for the chance to go at Russia directly. Naked asset grab. In his March 2015 memo, Soros further writes that Ukrainian President Poroshenko's first priority must be to regain control of financial markets, which he assures Poroshenko that Soros would be ready to assist him. Attributed to Soros is, I am ready to call Jack Lew of the U.S. Treasury to sound him out about the swap agreement. He also calls on the EU to give Ukraine an annual aid sum of $11 billion via a special EU borrowing facility. Soros proposes, in effect, using the EU's AAA top credit rating to provide a risk insurance for investment into Ukraine. Whose risk would the EU insure? Soros details... I'm prepared to invest up to $1 billion in Ukrainian businesses. This is likely to attract the interest of the investment community. As stated above, Ukraine must become an attractive investment destination. Not to leave any doubt, Soros continues, the investments will be for profit, but I will pledge to contribute the profits to my foundation. This should allay any suspicions that I am advocating policies in search of personal gain. For anyone familiar with the history of the Soros Open Society Foundation in Eastern Europe and around the world since the late 1980s will know that this supposedly philanthropic democracy-building projects in Poland, Russia, or Ukraine in the 1990s allowed Soros, the businessman, to literally plunder the former communist countries using Harvard University's shock therapy messiah and Soros associate Jeffrey Sachs 
to convince the post-Soviet governments to privatize and open to a free market at once rather than gradually. The example of Soros in Liberia is instructive for understanding the seemingly seamless interplay between Soros, the shrewd businessman, and the Soros, the the philanthropist. In West Africa, George Soros backed a former Open Society employee of his, Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, giving her international publicity and through his influence even arranging a Nobel Peace Prize for her in 2011, ensuring her election as president. Before her presidency, she had been well indoctrinated into the Western free market game, studying economics at Harvard and working for the U.S.-controlled World Bank in Washington and the Rockefeller City Bank in Nairobi. Before becoming Liberia's president, she worked for Soros directly as chair of his Open Society Initiative for West Africa. Once in office, President Sirleaf opened the doors for Soros to take over major Liberian gold and base metal assets, along with his partner, Nathaniel Rothschild. One of her first acts as president was to also invite the Pentagon's new Africa Command, AFRICOM, into Liberia, whose purpose as a Liberian investigation revealed was to protect George Soros and Rothschild mining operations within West Africa rather than champion the stability of human rights, stability and human rights. The Soros memos makes clear he has eyes on the Ukrainian state gas and energy monopoly, Naftogaz. He writes, the centerpiece of economic reforms will be the reorganization of Naftogaz and the introduction of market pricing for all forms of energy replacing hidden subsidies. In an earlier letter, Soros wrote in December 2014 to both President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsitnyuk, Soros openly called for his shock therapy. I want to appeal to you to unite behind the reformers in your government and give you wholehearted support to a radical, big bang type of approach. That is to say, administrative controls will be removed and the economy would move to market prices rapidly rather than gradually. Naphtha gas needs to be reorganized, with a big bang replacing the hidden subsidies. Splitting naphtha gas into separate companies could allow Soros to take control of one of the new branches and essentially privatize its profits. He already suggested that he indirectly bought an U.S. consulting firm, McKinsey, to advise naphtha gas through the privatization, privatization Big Bang. The Puppet Master The totality of what is revealed in the three hack documents show that Soros is effectively the puppet master pulling most of the strings in Kiev. Soros' foundation, Ukraine branch, International Renaissance Foundation, has been involved in Ukraine since 1989. His IRF doled out more than $100 million to Ukrainian non-governmental organizations two years before the fall of the Soviet Union, creating the preconditions for Ukraine's independence from Russia in 1991. Soros also admitted to financing the 2013-2014 Maiden Square protests that brought the current government into power. Soros' foundations were also deeply involved in the 2004 Orange Revolution that brought the corrupt but pro-NATO Viktor Yukashenko into power with his American wife who had been in the U.S. State Department. In 2004, just weeks after Soros' International Renaissance Foundation had succeeded in getting Viktor Yukashenko, as president of Ukraine, Michael McFall wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. McFall, a specialist in organizing color revolutions who later became U.S. Ambassador to Russia, revealed, Did Americans meddle in the internal affairs of Ukraine? Yes. 
The American agents of influence would prefer different language to describe their activities. Democratic assistance, democracy promotion, civil society support, etc. But their work, however labeled, seeks to influence political change in Ukraine. The U.S. Agency for International Development, the National Endowment for Democracy, and a few other foundations sponsored certain U.S. organizations, including Freedom House, the International Republic Institute, the National Democratic Institute, the Solidarity Center, the Eurasia Foundation, Internews, and several others to provide small grants and technical assistance to Ukrainian civil society. The European Union, individual European countries, and the Soros-funded International Renaissance Foundation did the same. Soros shapes new Ukraine. Today, the cyber barracoot hacked papers show that Soros's IRF money is behind creation of a National Reform Council, a body organized by presidential decree from Poroshenko, which allows the Ukrainian president to push bills through Ukraine's legislature. Soros writes, the framework for bringing the various branches of government together has also emerged. The National Reform Council brings together the presidential administration, the cabinet of ministers, the RADA, and its committees in civil society. The International Renaissance Foundation, which is the Ukrainian branch of the Soros Foundation, was the sole financial supporter of the NRC until now. Soros' NRC, in effect, is a vehicle to allow the president to override para- parliamentary debate to push through reforms with the declared first priority being privatization of naphtha gas and raising gas prices drastically to Ukrainian industry and households, something the bankrupt country can't afford. In his letter to Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk, Soros hints that he played a key role in selection of three key non-Ukrainian ministers. Natalia Jaresko, an American ex-State Department official, as finance minister. Ivaros Abramovikas of Lithuania as economics minister and health minister from Georgia and a health minister from Georgia. Soros, in his December 2014 letter referring to his proposal for a big bank privatization of not the gas and price rise states, you are fortunate to have appointed the three new Ukrainian ministers and several natives who are committed to this approach. Elsewhere, Soros speaks about de facto creating the impression within the EU that the current government of Yashnyak is finally cleaning out the notorious corruption that has dominated every Kiev regime since 1991. Creating that temporary reform illusion, he remarks, will convince the EU to cough up $11 billion annual investment insurance fund. His March 2015 paper says that it is essential for the government to produce a visible demonstration during the next three months in order to change the widely prevailing image of Ukraine as an utterly corrupt country. That he states will open the EU to make the $11 billion insurance guarantee investment fund. While saying that it is important to show Ukraine as a country that is not corrupt, Soros reveals he has little concern when transparency and proper procedures block his agenda talking about his proposals to reform Ukraine's constitution to enable privatizations and other Soros-friendly moves, he complains. The process has been slowed down by the assistance of the newly elected Rada on proper procedures and total transparency. Soros suggests that he intends to create this visible demonstration through his initiatives, such as using the Soros-funded National Reform Council, a body organized by President Kree, which allows the Ukrainian president to push bills through Ukraine's legislature. 
George Soros is also using his new European Council on Foreign Relations think tank to lobby his Ukraine strategy, with his council members such as Alexander Graf Lambsdorff or Joshua Fisher or Carl Theodore Zu Gutenberg, not to mention former ECB head Jean-Claude Trichet, no doubt laying a, playing a subtle role. George Soros, now 84, was bo- born in Hungary as a Jew. George Soros. Soros once boasted in a TV interview that he posed during the war as a Gentile with forged papers assisting the Horthy government to seize property of other Hungarian Jews who were being shipped to the Nazi death camps. Soros told the TV moderator, there was no sense that I shouldn't be there because that was, well, actually, in a funny way, it was just like in the markets, that if I weren't there, of course, I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would. This is the same morality apparently behind Soros' activities in Ukraine today. It seems again to matter not to him that the Ukrainian government he helped bring to power in February 2014, U.S. coup d'etat, is riddled with explicit anti-Semites and self-proclaimed neo-Nazis from the Svoboda Party and the Pravi sector. George Soros is clearly a devotee of public-private partnerships, Only here, the public gets fleeced to enrich private investors like Mr. Soros and friends. Cynically, Soros signs his Ukrainian strategy memo, George Soros, a self-appointed advocate of the the new Ukraine, March 12, 2015. So this article ends up highlighting that not only is what's going on in the Ukraine have to do with large domestic powers, uh, such as the Biden's, uh, Hunter, uh, as well as, uh, Joe and then the Pelosi's, uh, Nancy and her son. Uh, but really what it, it gets into is it interferes with what George Soros has been trying to do. And, and what you have to understand about government is, is that these political organizations that come together that where everyone ends up getting on the same page, well, they're not just on the same page. They actually end up deciding how they're going to divvy up the goods and how they're going to work to maintain the same page and advance their own financial interests. Because for Soros to do this, there have to be other types of quid pro quos. And these quid pro quos really end up happening more or less when these private uh, publicly held companies become, or these publicly held companies become privatized. And therefore, they need help from individuals with a Western background to be able to lead them because, as it would go, the, the quote-unquote backwards people need someone there who understands capitalist means to make sure that capitalist systems are created. But really what we have is we have a a sharing of spoils uh, from economic warfare that has been going on uh, for, you know, hundreds of years, really. But what we, what we have alluded uh, or deluded ourselves to believing is, is that 
that there is no political corruption because through democracy it, it eliminates that. But that's not quite the case. Actually, if you go all the way back to the creation of the, the Veterans Department, the VA administration, like its first building projects were some of the most corrupt with kickbacks that you'd ever see. If you watch uh, the the anything about the Teamsters Union and you understand how Las Vegas was built, well, it was built through the pension funds um, that the mob wasn't able to get direct access to money. So they borrowed money from the Teamsters through the pension funds. And therefore, whenever Jimmy Hoffa said that he knew where all the money was and where all the bodies were buried, well, they couldn't let that stand because they couldn't allow all of those notes to be called due by the Teamsters, which is what it looked like Hoffa was going to be doing. So government as an entity, if not carefully guarded, George Washington really said it best is that Government, like fire, is a powerful servant, but a fearful master. And so it is important that we keep the government on a short leash, or else it will put us on an even shorter leash. And with this, I ask you to be vigilant, to pay attention, as well as do your own research. Don't just believe this article, because whenever it comes to anything that's been hacked, uh, the Soviets were very good at, at changing small things uh, to change the entire tenor of something. And so you you never know. Deception is everywhere. And it is easier to believe a document that you want to believe, such as the confessions of a killer like Henry Lee Lucas, uh, whenever you just want to believe it than it is to believe something that you probably shouldn't believe. And so with that, I end this episode of the battle for the Republic. Uh, stay vigilant, stay alert and stay inquisitive, always asking questions and do not believe what your government is telling you. And this has been the battle for the Republic.